of us who are pretty much aware of what's going on in our country know that uh, some companies have image problems. Let me cite a few of them that you might know of. If I say British Petroleum, what do you think of? Gulf oil spill, yes, okay. What about Chipotle? E. coli bacteria, that's what they have. How about Facebook? Privacy issues, monitoring hate speech and all kinds of things. What if I say FIFA? No soccer players here, okay. They had a, a scandal with uh, 14 officials uh, accused of fraud, racketeering, and money laundering. The whole body in charge of professional soccer was deeply tainted. How about if I say McDonald's? What is their image problem? What about supersize me? Which of course is the wrong message for a country that's already supersized. How about the NFL? All kinds, were, that's big today, of course, with the Super Bowl taking place. They have image problems with all the uh, concussions, the head injuries, and of course, since uh, Colin Kaepernick's uh, kneeling at the national anthem, that's posed some big problems. They have image problems. What if I said um, Twitter? Of course, the purchase by Elon Musk has created some image problems. How about Volkswagen? <laughs> mileage, the emissions, remember? They, they fudged on the emissions numbers back in 2015. And Wells Fargo, they created in 2017 all kinds of fake accounts. Company after company has image problems. And uh, someone said, a company lives or dies by its reputation. Well, let's switch. What about evangelical Christians? We've got an image problem. I don't know, if you don't think that, you have had your head in the sand. We have a, a huge in, uh, problem with our image today. George Barna, that's a group that polls, does polling, and said they polled a thousand adults, and they found that 25% of those they polled could not think of one positive contribution made by Christianity. One, one out of every four people you see out in the public can't think of one good thing that Christians have ever done, which is quite ridiculous by even the most obvious objective standard, but that's the perception of people today. Um, we are um, commonly today in our society today, Christian evangelicals are um, associated with Christian nationalism and, and homophobia and hate-mongering and bigotry and racism and ignorance, white supremacy, and on and on it goes. Now, I happen to be an evangelical Christian, and the vast majority, maybe all of this, is absolutely false. But that doesn't matter. This is what our image is today. Um, and a poll done in 2019 found this. The better that Americans know evangelical Christians, the less they like them. So you think, well, if they only knew us, they would really, really like us because we're really nice people. But that's not the case. We have a major image problem 
in America today. But this isn't new. If I were to bring you back 1,700 years back to the early, three earliest centuries of Christian history, for 300 years, Christians had a horrible image problem. How do we know? The Roman writers wrote about it, and we have what they wrote. We were commonly considered as Christians, this is almost 2,000 years ago, we were commonly considered cannibals. Christians were called, in the popular press of the day, Christians were called cannibals because they eat the, the body and they drink the blood of Jesus. They do that when they get together. They eat human flesh and they drink blood. They're cannibals. We were also uh, considered to be gross, grossly immoral people. Why? Because they gather together and they, they kiss each other and they call each other brothers and sisters. So what do you call a person who kisses a brother or sister? Incest. So we were called incestuous people. The early Christians were called against the family. They were called atheists because they did not believe in the gods of Rome. They were considered to be those who disrupted the economics of the day. They were considered those who introduced new novelties to a very stable culture. They were considered to be unpatriotic. They were considered to be antisocial. And they were considered to be the cause of all disasters. This is a common phrase. If the Tiber overflows its walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move or the earth does, if there is famine, if there is plague, the cry is at once, Christians to the lions. Christians got blamed for every natural disaster, and they killed them. They had an image problem. There were people, good Christians, who for the first three centuries of Christian history wrote to the emperors, wrote to the people in power, wrote to the cultural elites, say, no, 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 we're not cannibals. No, 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 we're not incestuous. They wrote what were called apologies. They weren't apologizing, they were simply trying to correct the misunderstandings. But of course, it did no good at all. They had a terrible image problem. So, if you have an image problem, what do you do? What should we do? If you as an evangelical don't think we have an image problem, you are simply out of touch. We have one, and it's huge, and it's getting worse, probably by the day. What do we do? Remember last week we were in Ephesians, and we were um, in, in, in the fourth chapter, and we, the Apostle Paul said, um, you should stop living like the Gentiles. Because the Christians in Ephesus were living just like the pagans were. Stop that. Why? Because you have clothed yourselves in Christ. Start living like an in Christ person. Stop living like a Gentile. Start living like a Christian. And you see that, and you might have said last week, nice, good. How do you do it? How? That's what we're going to answer today. So today, our, our text of Scripture, chapter 4, verses 25 to 32 of Ephesians, 
is going to try to instruct us, okay, we are called as Christians to a new way of life. What does it look like? What does it look like for a Christian to live a Christ-like life? What does that look like? That's what we're going to look, like, look at today. Now, in the passage of Scripture today, we're going to have um, several things that Paul is going to say. You've got to stop doing this. You've got to start doing this. And here's the reason why. That's how it's going to be organized. Stop, start, here's why. And so, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. That's where we'll start. Now, the Apostle Paul starts his list with the very important issue of truth. Here's what it says. Therefore, why is the therefore there? Well, because remember the previous passage, he said, stop living like a Gentile, start living like a Christian. Therefore, this is what it looks like. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You see my pattern? Stop doing this, start doing this, and here's why. That's why the four is there. A modern paraphrase of this passage is written by Eugene Peterson in The Message. This is what he writes. Remember, this is a paraphrase, not a translation. What this adds up to then is this. No more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Stop. Stop lying. Which means that's what they were doing. Why? Because naturally, our default as human beings is to lie. Children lie. Children naturally lie. Children do not tell the truth. If they think they're going to get in trouble, if they think it's to their advantage, children, all human beings, are hardwired to lie. Someone wrote this. We have a passive drift toward lying. We lie because we desire advantage. We exaggerate because we want to put ourselves in a better light. We appear to agree with someone because we are afraid to confront him with the truth. We slander others because we find pleasure in destroying their reputations. Stop it. Stop lying. What's the alternative? Tell the truth. And here the Apostle Paul quotes Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16, which says, These are the things you are to do. Speak truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Why? Well, because we are a community of God's people. And if you lie to one another, there's no way you can create a community of God's people. You're finished. John Stott, a pastor in, L in London, wrote this. Fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. There is no possible way that we can ever correct the image problem we have in any society if we in the church don't tell each other the truth because we're done. People who are in Christ, we renounce falsehood, we embrace truth-telling. Why? 
because we believe that we're supposed to be building up the body of Christ. Jesus, speaking about religious leaders and everyone in general, he said, you have the propensity to lie, and here's why. Because you belong to your father. Who's your father? The devil. And you carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Our default mode as human beings is to lie. But if we follow our default mode, we will destroy any hope of having a body of Christ that works. How did Jesus speak about telling the truth? He said this, here it is. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this is evil. Now, think of the Bible. I call this the, maybe not the trinity, the quad trinity of truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. The Bible is called the God's truth. And the Bible says that it is impossible for God to lie. Impossible. We are people who call ourselves Christians, who follow someone who is truth. We have a Holy Spirit in us who is the spirit of truth. We follow the Bible, which is God's truth from a God who cannot lie. So we have the basis for doing so. Well, how do we lie? How do we lie to one another? Here are a few ways we do so. Betraying confidences, not being confidential. Blame shifting is lying. Broken promises, cheating. Duplicity, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Exaggeration, excuse making, flattery, plagiarism propaganda, rumors, self-deception, slander. These are all forms of, of lying, and there are many, many others. I went to a, a, a website, and I simply said, what are various forms of deception? And they say all deception fits into five categories. Number one, lies. That is, saying things that are the opposite of truth. Number two, equivocations making indirect, ambiguous, or contradictory statements. Boy, is our culture full of that. Three, concealments. The media does this every day. Omitting information that is important or relevant. The media every single day, every single program tells you what they want in their agenda to tell you, and they purposely omit what doesn't fit their line of truth. Both sides do this, by the way. That is lying, exaggeration, exaggeration, overstatement, or stretching the truth. And number five, understatement, minimizing or downplaying aspects of the truth. Those are various forms of truth. Can it honestly be said of us that in among us, and as we represent Jesus in our lives, we are people who tell the truth? We're people who are, are faithful um, to, to, to God's truth. We are trustworthy. Because if we're not, 
We will never deal with the, the, the image problem we have. No way at all. That's the first of his buts. The second one is, I called it, going from a rage, from the rage to the sage. You see, Christians, when we become Christians, we do not lose our emotions. Emotions are neither bad nor good, but we all have them. But our emotions, um, I like to liken our emotions to the, to the um, warning lights on the dashboard of a car. If your check engine light goes on, you do not get a hammer and, and bang that, that light. If you do that, the light will turn off, but you have not fixed the problem with your engine. You see, the problem is not the light. The problem is the engine. It's the same thing with emotions. Emotions are like the warning lights of our lives. They don't, you don't try to get rid of your emotions to fix it. You, when the, the emotions simply say, look deeper, there's something going on inside of you, and here's what the Word of God says. Verse, verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. The New American Standard says this, Be angry, and yet do not sin. And here's the message. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry. But don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of a foothold in your life. Now, in your anger, do not sin. That's a quote from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul constantly quotes the Old Testament. Stop letting your life be dominated by your rage and anger. Stop it. What should you start? Cultivate the limitation of your anger by keeping short accounts. Cultivate that. Why? If you don't, Satan is going to take advantage of you. That's pretty bad. Stop living your life dominated by your anger. Start limiting that anger, understanding that anger, and dealing with it properly. Why? If you don't, you're dead meat. Satan will take advantage of you. Anger is an emotional arousal caused by something that displeases us. Anger is not sin. If you see things taking place, and this should happen to us every day, if you see things taking place that are wrong, that are evil, that hurt human beings, you should be angry. But if you dwell on that anger, if you allow that, if you feed that anger, if you allow that anger to dominate your mind and your heart, you have just opened yourself up to being destroyed by Satan. And so what's God's answer? Keep it short. Christians must deal carefully with the natural emotion of anger Knowing that anger, even righteous anger, if it is nursed, will become bitterness. Was Jesus angry? You bet he was. Do you remember what got him angry? I was looking through the life of Jesus, trying to figure out when does it say Jesus was angry, and this is what I came up with. First of all, 
just after he began his public ministry, he went into the temple in Jerusalem and he saw that they had turned the great temple designed for the worship of God into a business place, a marketplace. And Jesus said, this is my father's house. The desecration of his father's house made him angry. And it would be make him angry too if we turned these buildings designed for the worship of God into primarily business places. That would make God angry today. Remember what happened with Jesus? There was a man who had a withered hand. He lived his life with his, with his, his, his arms and hands not able to function properly. And it was a Sabbath day. And they put Jesus up. Hey, Jesus, what are you going to do with this dude? Because you can't heal him on a Sabbath, remember? That's what we made up our law to say. And Jesus looked at the man and said, Stretch out your hand. And Jesus healed him. Jesus was furiously angry at compassionless and hardened hearts. It made him angry. Remember what Jesus did when he was at the, the graveside of Lazarus who had been dead four days and already had started to stink? And he saw these people gathered around and it says, he, the word is, he snorted like a horse. He was angry. And he wept. Jesus was angry at the sting of death. Why is there death? Because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why it made him angry. In Matthew 23, when Jesus pronounces the woes on the Pharisees, he was angry. What made him angry? At religious leaders who lead God's people astray. It made him angry. We seem to live in a very angry period in our nation's history. And we are instructed as God's people to be part of the solution, not the problem. I, I, I think, if I'm, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, that if you asked most people in our culture today, how do Christians strike you? Many would say, oh, they're angry. They're angry. No. No. We, we, we're angry when we see evil, and there's plenty of that to be angry, but, but we don't nurse that anger. We don't hold on to that anger. We don't live in that anger. We live in the love of Christ, in the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we live. No. Turn that rage into a sage. Be wise, not angry. Thirdly, the next example has to do with how we deal with possessions, from thievery to generosity. Here's what the Bible says. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that, here's the reason, that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, if I was writing this, I would say, those of you who are stealing, stop it. That's it. But that's not what God says. It's not enough for us not to be thieves. God says, no, 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 no. That, that's called nothingness. That's how everybody should operate. But that's not how Christians operate. Christians, this is how we operate. We don't steal. What do we do instead? 
We work hard. Why? So that we've got enough that we can help a lot of other people. That's why. It's not enough to go from thievery to stop your thievery. God says, no, stop stealing and work hard so that you could open your hands and help a lot of other people. That's what he says. Stop stealing. There's a certain uh, attraction to taking things that are not our own. You say, oh, I would never do that. Oh, no. Let me suggest some of the ways we steal. None of this would ever fit us, of course. Cheating on your income tax, embezzlement, and entitlement mentality. That's stealing. Falsified cost overruns, falsified time cards, internet downloads. The majority stealing from the minority in a democracy. That's stealing. Overestimating, padding expense accounts, paying unfair wages, pocketing overpayments at a store, reneging on a debt, shoplifting, or the theft of intellectual property. Oh, these are various forms of stealing which we tend to do. One of my, the passages I love if, if, if I wanted to summarize everything that the Bible says with regard to money, I would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In a couple of short verses, in fact, two verses, 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18, God tells us everything we need to know, in my opinion. Here it is. God says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Who's that? Every single one of us. Every single one of us in this room here makes more in a week than many people in our world make in, a, in their whole year. Every American, even the poorest of us, is rich by world standards. So that's all of us, okay? Here's how God instructs us who are in, teach those who are rich. God says four things. Number one, don't become conceited. The greatest danger of wealth is that you, you determine people's worth by wealth. We look at ourselves, I make more money than you do, I'm a better person than you, than you are. I'm more blessed by God than you are. I must have things going for me that you don't. You're lazy, I'm a hard worker. Don't you dare do that. Don't let it go to your head. Don't be conceited, nor, number two, put your trust in the uncertainty of riches. All of us know who had any money in an IRA in, in 2008 that within a month, I lost 40%. And you probably did too, or maybe 50%. What did we do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We might be in another time like that right now. Money is not trustworthy. It comes and goes, but it doesn't end there. God says, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but rather put your hope in God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. He's not a miser. God doesn't want us to live necessarily a, 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 a bad lives. He says, oh, I want you to enjoy life, but don't trust money. It is not trustworthy. Don't be conceited. Don't trust money. And the third says, says be rich in good deeds. You want to be rich? Good. Become rich in good deeds. 
And then the fourth thing, and be generous. Be generous. That's what Paul says here. No, we are people, stop stealing. What's give generously because we have been generously given by God. That's what God says. We as Christians should be known as those who work hard, but we don't work hard simply to pad our own nests. We work hard so that we can help other people. I've, um, I've often thought how wonderful it is, and I know not too many people like this, who get to their retirement age, and by the time you get to your retirement age, you're you often at the height of your earning potential. But people say, I, I get to my retirement age, now I can sit back, kick up my, my heels, and, and, and watch TV and play golf. I'm looking for Christians who get to their retirement age at the top of their earning potential and say, you know, I don't need much now as I get older, but boy, I can really give a lot. I can help a lot of people. I'm going to keep working so that I can enrich others. That's Christian. That's what God wants. I wish there were more people who said, you know, I, I don't need to work. I, I, I have plenty of money. But I want to help other people. Oh, what a wonderful way to live my life. Rather than most people and most Americans, I want to stop work because work is bad. No, it isn't bad. Work is a blessing from God. In fact, they, they worked in the garden before there was sin, and we will work in heaven one day. Ah, work is good. But then he turns to the mouth, verses 29 and 30. You know, without dispute, the use of words in the United States of America today is increasingly base. Our language today is horrible. It's like we don't know how to use any words except curse words anymore. The use of words by Americans today is horrible. And it's not just words, it's what people write on these, all these websites, horrible things. We don't know how to stop it. But, but what it shows us is we are really messed up. And much of the way we're messed up is what comes out of our mouths or what now we put onto our text messages or our, our social media sites. It's horrible. What does God say? Here's what God says, verses 29 and 30. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That, here's the reason, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here again is Eugene Peterson in the message. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps, each word a gift. Don't grieve God, don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Stop. Stop being a sewer. Start being an, a mouth that builds other people up. Why? Because if you don't, you are grieving the Holy Spirit and you're hurting other people. You see, Christians are supposed to be people who are very, very well aware of the power of our mouths 
and I would add the power of our text messages, the power of our social media sites. We are aware of the power of words, and we use words for good. Oh, there are many ways we use our mouths for bad things. It's not what God would want at all. This is a, a, a text from Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 22, speaking of Jesus. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? Where did they learn this, they thought. The book of James, of course, is the main passage of the scripture about taming the tongue. Can it be, would it be, if you ask people in our culture, how would you, what do you think about Christians? How are they with words? I hope they would say that they use words carefully and graciously. They use words to build people up, not tear them down. That's something that should characterize us. Well, the list ends with Paul just adding some things to his grocery bag, if you will. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That's what you're supposed to stop doing. Here's what you're supposed to start doing. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Because God in Christ Jesus forgave you. There's the reason. Stop all of these vices. Start these virtues. Why? Because you are the recipients of Christ's forgiveness. That's why. Pretty important thing. Treat, someone wrote this, treat your soul like a garden that needs constant weeding. Pluck these things out. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. And put these in instead. Come kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. There's an old Christian hymn. I remember those of us who were alive in the 60s, and that's almost all of us in this room here, but not all. Remember? They'll know we are Christians by our love. I hope that's true. How? Do we stop living like Gentiles and start living like followers of Jesus Christ? We're people, not of falsehood, but who are trustworthy. We don't tell lies in their various forms. Why? Because we know that lies destroy community. And we are the community of God's people. We're not people who are dominated by our emotion of anger though we appropriately have anger, we turn that anger from rage into wisdom, being rage to sage. We don't nurse our anger. We watch our wrath, because if we don't, Satan will take advantage of us. We don't steal. And thievery takes many, many different forms in this culture. We don't steal for others. Instead, we work hard. But we work hard not simply to pad our own nest, but we work hard so that we have excess, plenty of excess, so we can help others generously. We look at our mouths. We 
recognize the tendency of the mouth to be used for bad things, to tear people down, to hurt people. We stop that. Instead, we recognize that these mouths are instruments for potentially great good. We use them to encourage, to speak words of life. Why? Well, we do that because we can have a powerful impact on other people's lives if we do so. We have an image problem. What do we do with it? Well, maybe the first thing I would say is we can't change it. We can't change it easily. Any more than the early Christians for 300 years could, could change the incredibly false things said about them, said about us today. But what we can do is we can um, not capitulate to the culture. We cannot um, compromise with the culture, but this we can do from the words of Jesus. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And I end with this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, that's image problem, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. May we be a people who stop living like the Gentiles and start living like the one whose name we bear, Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit, the helper. Without him, we would be in deep trouble. Thank you for the example and the empowerment of Jesus. For that, we are most, most blessed. And we thank you. We pray that as a community of your people, we would be We'd be the kind of people who would shine a light in this world. And though they throw mud at us, it won't stick. And instead, they'll see Jesus. That's our prayer. We pray in his name. Amen. Just before we sing, and we're going to sing a blessing, which is marvelous. Um, as uh, Sandy mentioned, uh, uh, Levon and Dick, there you are. You're going to leave us. I understand to, to go to another church in Castle Rock. You have been faithful, faithful servants of this church for decades and decades. And there's no way really to, to know the impact that you've had on people's lives. But I'd like to, in, in, before we sing a blessing over you, I would like to just read two passages of Scripture, two verses, first for you, Levon, and then for you, Dick. The one I picked for you, Levon, is this one. It's from Romans chapter 16. And... Uh, Here's what Paul wrote. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. And I'm going to change it. I commend to you our sister Levon, a servant of the church. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need for you. For she has been a great help to many people including me. Paul wrote that for all time and eternity. Here's a woman in the church 
who he called a servant of the church. And that's you've been in spades, Levant, for many, many years. A servant of the church who has been a great help to many people. And Paul says, including me. And I would say the same. Thank you. And Dick, this is my verse for, for you. I'm sure you've preached on this many times, but now I'd apply it to you. 1 Peter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, all of which you have been. And here's the best part. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That's the promise. Thank you both for your faithfulness to God that only heaven knows the great value to so many lives that you've touched. Thank you, both of you. And now, time to bless one another. So please stand as we sing.